Now, let me actually just give you a brief um, look at the context in which um, Paul reports that prayer that um, uh, Peter read to us because uh, it's the context uh, that, that we're actually going to be spending most, giving most of our attention to. Back in chapter 2, verse 17. Brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason... When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy's just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you? And so on. We are still echoing, Ted. I'm sorry, you're going to have to keep turning it down or everyone's going to be really thoroughly fed up. Maybe it's partly because the speaker's actually pointing towards me. Are you you alright? I don't want to... Exhaust your ears with that, that echo. Is that all right? Well, let me ask a question then at, uh, uh, as we begin. What is it? What do we really need that will give us a really vital prayer life? What is it will, which will really get us praying as individuals and as a church? Uh, Not that the present quality of our prayer life is necessarily that bad, but anyone, I think, with a a degree of spiritual sensitivity would want to improve their prayer life. Any church should want to improve it too. Actually, I confess, as a pastor, I, I, I always have a sinking feeling when I know that as leaders or as a church we're going to discuss how we might improve our prayer life because I know broadly before we start what we will conclude we'll conclude that we must have more prayer meetings and that uh, the pastor must do a series of sermons on prayer and uh, that's exactly how we have responded and uh, um, uh, in in many ways that is that is excellent I thoroughly support uh, both the initiative that we've taken to uh, have a series, uh, uh, a season of prayer um, uh, punctuated by more um, prayer meetings and also that uh, we have taken the initiative to look at what the Bible says about prayer. But there is a danger. 
The danger is that such initiatives communicate the unwritten message that our problem with prayer is only due to lack of organisation and lack of knowledge. And I'm not convinced. Actually, still more insidious is the un- un- undercurrent that uh, this problem is someone else's problem. It's the problem of those who organise us and of those who teach us. And only if they get it right will, we, uh, will, our, will our prayer life uh, improve. Now, as church leaders, we have to be prepared to take responsibility for uh, the life of the church and prepared to, to shoulder that responsibility. But um, it would be very dangerous if we concluded, especially in the area of prayer, that most personal thing, that it was someone else's responsibility rather than mine. And it would be still more dangerous, I think, if we concluded that uh, the real problem is just organisation and knowledge. I've embarked um, uh, on this uh, series um, on prayer then with some trepidation because there is a danger, it seems to me, that for all our good intentions we could point ourselves in precisely the wrong direction. I do not think the answer lies, for most of us at least, in learning more truth. Because for most of us, the weakness in our prayer life is not actually in our heads, it's in our hearts. It's not in our understanding. It's in our passion. As we learn from the, uh, from the Apostle Paul then, actually, I want us to try and dig down and see the passions that drove him. Paul is actually one of the most intensely passionate characters in the Bible. Actually, most people's perception of Paul is quite different from that. Uh, A few years ago, for instance, there was a series of introductions to Bible books um, uh, produced by the publisher's Canon Gates. They were called the, the Pocket Canon. They invited um, writers who were sceptics or followers of other faiths to uh, give extensive uh, introductory essays to books of the Bibles. And uh, the the, um, publishers, after actually Tony Blair had turned them down, um, asked the feminist author Faye Weldon to uh, write an introduction to Paul's letters to the Corinthians. She began in this way. Doesn't Paul take up such an annoyingly large chunk of the Bible, she said. After the romance and passion and savagery of the early days are all finished, after that death upon the cross, uh, he has his undramatic letters to here and letters to there, a very Mandelson of religious politics demanding his united front. How quickly the early church, under Paul's tuition, ceases to be visionary and turns respectable. How short are the days of miracle and wonder. Believe, behave, consult 
unite. She went on, there's so little love in Paul other than in God, which seems a, a, a way of getting out of the need for it in person. Actually, Faye Weldon sent her introduction off to, to uh, the publishers, but um, the writing of that diatribe had forced her to read the Apostle Paul himself. Initially, she later confessed she read him simply to find material to bolster those presuppositions that she set down in the introduction. But afterwards, she couldn't put him down. She began a reassessment of Paul and actually of the whole Bible. And that reassessment culminated culminated in her being baptised into the Anglican Church. I'm praying that actually something of that sort of change will happen in our hearts. That we will be actually profoundly touched as we see what this man with a heart aflame with emotion and love and passion really says... Our prayer life actually is an overflow of our heart. And in the end, our prayer life is aroused as our passions are aroused. So in order to understand this passage, I I want us to ask three simple questions. And then we're going to ask a fourth one. The fourth one is uh, where we're heading. How does Paul then pray? But the first three, actually, I think, are the most important. First one is this. What does Paul long for? The answer is found in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 2. He longs, first of all, obviously, to be united with them. That comes out again and again. His first visit to to this city of uh, Thessalonica is recorded in Acts chapter 17. He was there for only a few weeks. He founded a church. He uh, generated such opposition, his life was in danger and he had to flee, actually against his will. By the time he writes this letter, Paul's been away from the church for a few months. He's had a busy time in Athens Um, a place called Berea, and now finally he is in Corinth. In Corinth as well, he has has an an enormous amount of do, lots of challenges to occupy his mind. But he tells these Thessalonians that he longs with a passion to be back amongst them. Even though he's only known them for a few weeks. Verse 17, Brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. (coughs) Why did he long to return to those people so intensely? Well, he tells them, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Actually, in English eyes, that looks a little bit shocking. 
motivations seem to be rather lowly. We, we want him to say that um, uh, he has uh, carefully considered and this is the best way for him to use his time. We want him to say that he is persuaded that this is his duty under God that he, mu- he must return. Those are the highest motivations, surely. Actually, he says, I want to come to you because it will make me happy. I want to come to you because uh, actually as I, as I uh, live alongside you and I'm able to teach you and uh, help you in your faith, I am I, looking forward to an extraordinary reward on the last day when Jesus comes again. I want to come to you uh, as we saw last week because I'm hungry for glory. The glory actually here of, of, of having a group of people whom I have helped to know Christ. Paul's well aware of his duty. I'm sure he thought carefully about strategy. But his deep, passionate motivation is to be uh, joyfully enriched by renewing his relationship with them. I wonder what you long for. Overworked people long for rest, don't they? Under people, underpaid people long for money. Lonely people long for love. And those are not, a bad, not bad things to long for. But Paul longs for the greater joy and reward of being amongst God's people, of serving them, of loving them. For him that's not a sacrifice. It's his greatest gain. They are, as he puts it, his glory and joy. Now to be sure, in some senses he's unique. He has the role of apostle. But in other senses you see, every Christian is called to minister amongst God's people, to encourage God's people, to love God's people. And Paul says if we really understand what we're doing as we do that, we will realise it's our greatest joy, our greatest reward, our greatest satisfaction. I wonder, I wonder what proportion of us really long, really are motivated, very heart of our being, to find our deepest joy and satisfaction in serving and encouraging and ministering to God's people. Of course, for some of us it may be a more public role. There are roles for all of us. We have a rotor for setting up here on Sunday mornings. There's desperately short of people. I've been taken aback actually by the number of people who said, no, no, I won't do that.
Do we really long? Do we really discover the joy and satisfaction that Paul knows? Paul's prepared to bust a gut for serving God's people. Secondly, what does uh, Paul fear? Chapter 3, verse 5. This reason when I could stand it no longer, a phrase that comes up again and again. For this reason when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have have been useless. He actually doesn't fear quite the same things that we fear. He doesn't fear for... um, uh, these Thessalonians that they would suffer opposition and persecution that's not the focus of his fear actually on the contrary he says um, uh, that's bound to happen verse uh, 2 we sent Timothy as our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials you know quite well we were destined for them in fact when we were with you we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way as, uh, as you know that's a given he says struggles, difficulties, opposition Satan's malevolence against you that's a given that's what happens when people turn and follow Jesus Christ That's what happens when people actually discover what they were made for. Because Satan hates that. And he will do absolutely anything that that he can to oppose us. Two characteristic ways in which he works are to intimidate and entice us. Neither says if you live like that, if you do that, if you trust Christ in that way, you will suffer for it. Be frightened. Or he says, uh, if you just do that, or satisfy that petty desire that you have, then you'll be far happier. Both of those are lies. We find our deepest joy in following Christ. And in following Christ, we need not. We need fear nothing, though trouble will come. We need be tempted by nothing so other things will come in our way our greatest satisfaction will be found in Christ but the tempter or uh, it could be translated the, the tester, the trier of our faith will try to intimidate and entice us and that's what Paul really fears He doesn't fear, you see, that you will get sick and die. Because you will. He fears that you will wander away from Christ and fear death more than fearing the judgment of God. He doesn't fear that you will have relational difficulties that you might struggle in a marriage, that you might feel lonely. Because you will. At some point. 
he fears that in struggling with those relationship difficulties we will fail to, to find the God of all comfort the God who loves us more than any human being could or to be tempted away to false solutions what Paul fears you see is what he most passionate about that we would not be turned aside by the devil but would find our joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ what does Paul live for Verse 6, Timothy has just now come to us from you, has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Now we really live. This is an extraordinary turn of phrase, isn't it? Now we live. Before when we weren't sure what was happening to you. We existed. But actually, life has flown into our soul as we've seen the love that there is amongst you, as we've seen the growing faith that there is amongst you, as we've seen that you stand firm despite those oppositions. That is what Paul lives for. Anything else for him is, is just existence. It may be biological life, it is not life itself. He lives both to, um, to see in himself and in those that he cares about, growing faith and love. What do you live for? Of course, there are, there are lots of... Uh, of, uh, of other things to live for and rightly so there are lots of other aspects of our lives by which we glorify God but at the core of our being the very heart of who we are the Bible calls us to to be devoted to to live for growth in faith and love amongst God's people. You see those passions then? See, the intense, passionate way in which Paul describes his thoughts and his actions and his motivations and his plans he uses words that, that, that includes a sense of overflowing sometimes or, or deep anguish or, or, or uh, um, uh, other, other ways of intensity. He wants to show this group of people who he knew only for a few weeks how passionately he is concerned for them. I, I, want, I want to say to you this morning, for all of us, it is discovering those passions 
that will revive and revitalise our church, our prayer lives. It's actually seeing that our greatest joy, our greatest glory, our greatest reward comes in, in, in giving ourselves to others for Christ. Actually seeing what's really going on in this world. The big issues are not, uh, are not those trials that dominate our minds. The big issue is what the devil is trying to do in our hearts. It's actually seeing. We really find life as we devote ourselves to one another one another's faith and love. So now we can ask that uh, fourth question. How does Paul pray? But actually we know it already. We barely need to look actually at verses 9 to 13 to know the answer because we know his heart. We know his passion. It's not the slightest surprise to us to hear him just just bubbling over with thanks and joy. Verse uh, 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? A man could not be happier. And we know why. We would expect that. We would expect him to be on his knees before God, begging night and day for the opportunity once again to go into the teeth of that dangerous opposition up there in Thessalonica in order to help those people in their faith. That's what we see as well, verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. We, we We wouldn't expect anything else, would we? We would expect him to be praying that, that, that if he can't be there, that God who is, who is everywhere would be, would be increasing their love and that that increased love would strengthen their hearts and those strengthened hearts would, be, uh, would enable them to live blameless and holy lives. There is, there, there, there's a connection there in verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else, just as ours does for you, so that, verse 13, he may strengthen your hearts. Um, that, that love then strengthens the hearts of believers and only strong hearts are able to find that moral courage to lead blameless and holy lives, so that he may strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father. Love leads to strong hearts, leads to courage to live a blameless and holy life. We're not at all surprised that he's praying for those things. Because we've seen his heart. How wrong you were, Faye Weldon, when you said Paul was passionate and loveless. Actually, his passion bursts out of these letters, even 2,000 years later, and that frankly leaves us reeling and wondering whether we could ever begin to live up to that, that, that love and passion that he shows. It's easy to be overwhelmed, actually, when you read the Apostle Paul in a way that, that can paralyse us. 
How can we even begin to emulate this man? Let me just say, start with small steps. In small ways. Break out of that that joyless, self-centred black hole of a world that, 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 that sucks everything into it and gives out no light. And learn to be, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, shining like stars in the universe. Commit yourself perhaps to one new act of service for God's people. And ask God, pray, that he would show you the joy that comes from that. The reward that we're promised in doing that. The glory that comes from that. Think about one thing that frightens you and think, what is that I really need to fear in that situation? Is it the fear of being alone? Or is it the fear of in desperation at my loneliness doing something that separates me from God? Is it the fear of old age and dying? Or is it the fear that as I face those issues I will not find the peace of trusting Christ? Is it the fear of losing my job? Or is it the fear actually of being so obsessed with keeping my job that I don't glorify Christ in it? Ask God to show you what it's really worth living for. Now we really live, said Paul. writer Flannery O'Connor she said uh, in a letter to a friend once picture me with ground teeth stalking joy fully armed too because it's a highly dangerous quest dangerous and costly it is but it is the great glorious, wonderful, joyful thing that God calls us to do, to stalk that joy, to see the true source of joy and passionately search for it. We need God to awaken our passions. Our passions for things that really satisfy. And then there will be no need to worry about our prayer life. Because prayer is the overflow of our heart.